to the Onyx Pantcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me are Dixie Cochran. Hello. And Matthew Dawkins. Gesundheit. <laughs> I didn't sneeze, well, but now I feel like I have to. <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> Thank you. I feel so much better now, so much lighter. Very confusing. <laughs> it doesn't really matter the order as long as it gets in there. Do, does anybody find sneezing painful? You know, like, uh, th- does anyone actually hate sneezing? Only when I'm having an allergy attack or something, because I have uh, seasonal allergies. Mm-hmm. So, like, when it's like I sneezed 83,000 times that day, uh, yeah. it can start to hurt. Or, like, if you have a sore throat, you know, sometimes it hurts when you sneeze. Yeah, that hurts. That sucks. So, like, not most of the time. Most of the time it's fine. But when it's like I've been sneezing for the past hour and I can't stop, it starts to hurt a little. I always find sneezing a you know a great relief. It's it's always quite pleasant. But I have sneezed once whilst drinking Coca Cola, and that hurts a lot. Oh yeah, right through the uh, nose. Co- yeah, Coca Cola on the sinuses, it burns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the topic of this episode. Uh, uh, the benefits of sneezing. Let's talk about that. Did you just hour. take hosting duties away from Eddie? Apparently, editing. yeah. Uh, within <laughs> two minutes. You just come in and snipe, snipe the whole podcast. <laughs> I was talking uh, as I was talking. I was watching his the grip of his fingers on the topic loosen. They were getting lighter and lighter and lighter, and I went ha and took it and said, All "Right, topic: sneezing rebrand." Sit down, it sneeze past. <laughs> sneeze past. Sneeze past. Yeah, sneeze past and sneeze, sneeze on. Sneeze past. <laughs> Path sneeze. Apparently, the healthiest way to sneeze is to uh, lift up your top and sneeze into onto your torso. Yeah, oh, I always yeah. sneeze onto my upper arm because I I was a server for a long time. Mm. I worked at various restaurants, and that's what they kind of call the like server sneeze because yeah. you know if you're handling food, you don't want to get it anywhere near your hands. Right to the point where I see anybody who sneezes into their hands, I'm like, ah, yeah, wash your hands. Oh god, because <laughs> like it was so like drilled out of me yeah yeah well, exactly because it's very unhealthy to carry a handkerchief around it's very unhealthy to sneeze in your hands um but i at the same time i think there's a hang-up some people have about sneezing down their top because they and they think oh i'm gonna be all wet on my chest and that's not nice well, if you're sneezing that much liquid you might have a cold or something going on yeah be- best to use tissues <laughs> yeah <would say>. right <laughs> But no, if it's just like a regular sneeze, like not like a gross, wet, whatever you're describing sneeze, like a like a body mm. horror sneeze. <laughs> just... Half a brain. Yeah. Like a, yeah. This splatter of, of, of matter across your chest. And sneezing into briny. your shoulder is fine. Yeah. Deviate the sneezing. Mm. No, there's the first expansion book for it. <laughs> Sneezes what I have known. This One of the five dots in sneezing. Three minutes of this. <laughs> Our listeners are probably very confused. Uh, well, it, if they are, they're clearly not regular listeners. They must be new to the podcast if they're confused. What's happening? <laughs> but um, now, what we are actually planning to talk about, this is a bit of a segue into what we're talking about in the sense that the, the benefits and downsides, the, the good and bad uh, relationships we've had with a variety of games, and specifically what kinds of positive and negative uh, uh, gaming moments we've had, gaming experiences we had. Uh, because we've been, we've talked about some anecdotes off and on through the podcast, but I think when we think about design, it's very uh, helpful to actually think about what works and what doesn't work, whether it's in the game itself with the collection of people that have gathered together for a game, um, the hype around a game, whenever. Uh, it, there's all sorts of things, that, and a lot of those uh, things that can happen for any kind of game can be transferred to even designing a tabletop role-playing game. So we're going to have a, a kind of a meandering exploration through our various uh, uh, gaming careers, gaming experiences, uh, uh, just experiencing games, uh, uh, whether it's you know the, the hype around them, the how they're packaged, how they're presented, um, and, and you know less focused than our usual podcasts i'm sure you've discerned from how we usually have a tight ship around here yeah yeah Im- I- implying that we ever have focus that's that was the joke <laughs> or a that ship. was the joke matthew ah <laughs> uh, okay well that that completely flew out. it must have been an american thing <laughs> you know focus is an we, american thing <laughs> yeah we, we british have a very dry sense of humor it was clearly too obvious for me <laughs> 
<laughs> well, then we're starting with you, Matthew, because you know, since you clearly have a much better, more refined sense of, of what is good and what is bad. <laughs> uh, uh, let's start with video games, actually. Um, let's, let's work our way out kind of in, in towards role-playing games. So I mean, do you think of a, a really noteworthy um, video game experience you've had in your life? Ooh, that's a good question. Should have come prepared, really, shouldn't I? Uh, I think <laughs> one of the uh, gaming experiences that really left an impression on me was the very first Resident Evil on PlayStation, or mm -hmm. PSX, as we called it. And PSX. the yeah, uh, the I remember when I played it. I was probably under the age appropriate to play it, but never mind that. And. I remember the the save music, the uh, the safe room music, and so on that uh, that has existed almost throughout every Resident Evil game, and how reassuring it was. And I recall in that game, I would go into rooms containing zombies, I would gun them down, and I would run back to the main hall. I would just keep going back to the main hallway in the Resident Evil mansion because no monsters ever entered the main hallway. Oh. And so it completely ingrained itself, a sort of almost uh, Pavlov's dog, uh, that I would, I would be able to return to this place because the music gave me a sense of reassurance. And even if there was a better save spot deeper in the mansion, I would take my ink ribbons all the way back to the opening hallway and save there because at least I knew that the rooms immediately surrounding it would be cleared. Huh. And that may sound, it may sound a bit odd uh, because these weren't respawn, well, they weren't respawning enemies. These were, I was going through these rooms systematically clearing them of monsters and puzzles to the best of my ability but because i was approaching this from i guess a 12 or a 13 year old's mind i wasn't thinking about con conserving ammunition right. i was basically taking enemies out by the seat of my pants burning through ammo missing a lot of the times i was shooting to the point that when i finally started getting onto the harder enemies i was unable to do anything about them i had no no ammo no decent weaponry I had just wasted everything on these shuttle runs through the mansion, killing things, running back, taking breath, saving for someone at the 12th time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, it was uh, definitely an experience that marked me because it, it just gave me a greater rush, I think, than anything had at that point in my gaming history, uh, both from fear, I guess, excitement, expectation, and that sense of comfort, knowing a certain area is safe. Mm -hmm. And you actually touched on a point that I think uh, is interesting. You talk about age appropriateness. Um, I, I think even all of us here could probably even say that you know we approach things in the world of darkness probably a bit younger than maybe we were supposed to. Um, and I think a lot of our fans are, are really uh, um, uh, devoted fans fall, fall, fall in the same category where they, they approach these things, you know, horror or whatnot, you know, what, what, earlier than quote unquote they're supposed to. But I think that. We talked before kids can actually handle horror probably better than adults believe they do. And also it, it, it gets under your skin in a way that it doesn't quite do as an adult when you're that young. So it's interesting to hear how you, how that still resonates with you. And I think it's hard because, probably because you were a bit younger. Mm, it's, it's quite possible. I mean, I've very rarely had that experience with horror films, for mm. instance, uh, where I needed to take a break from the action. And there were certainly movies that scared me when I was young, but it's only, I guess, as an adult did I ever have a horror movie where I had to stop partway through and think, okay, I need a breather now. I need to actually go somewhere safe uh, where I can clear my head. And then I went back to it and finished it. But that's only happened once, and I'm not saying that in a sort of bravado way. It's just unusual to me that... Uh, that I've got this video game where it happened to me where I was about 12 or 13 and a horror film where it happened to me when I was about 22, 23, maybe. Uh, Dixie, what about you? Do you have any uh, positive experiences with video games? I have tons of positive experiences with video games. I've been a video gamer my whole life. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the thing. I mean, like, we had the video game episode, obviously. Right. So I've, I've talked a lot about games I love. I've, I've talked about my, you know, 10-year World of Warcraft history. Mm -hmm. Um which I will not get back into. <laughs> I get, every now and then I think I want to get back into this, and I'm just like, eh, it's not the same. I will I'll talk about two things then. One, why it's not the same. 
World of Warcraft was really fun for me for decades or for a decade Mm -hmm. because of my group of people. Because Mm. I had a really awesome guild and we had a lot of fun together. And then even when the guild like wasn't hanging out as much or wasn't online as much, I had a core group of like five really good friends I played with and we run dungeons together and we chat the whole time. And it was very it, it was very social activity for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I try to get back into it, like everybody's kind of scattered to the winds. Most people don't play anymore, like the group I used to play with. And I don't really want to put in the effort to find a new group of people because mm-hmm. um, my old group was so perfectly suited to me. Like it was very, uh, there was a lot of gender parity. It was very, it was, it was a little older yep. than your typical like group of gamers. Like everybody mm-hmm. was mostly, you know, 30 plus. Um, trying to find that again. I'm not, I just don't even want to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's like, that's why I did like it, and that's why I'm probably not ever going to get super back into World of Warcraft again. Mm-hmm. Um, but to talk about a recent experience, I have been, I am 60 hours deep into Assassin's Creed Odyssey over the past couple months. Like, I've been playing that almost every night for, like, a, a couple hours, and then I've had a couple, you know, marathon weekend sessions <laughs> where I've, I've, I've literally played at least once for, like, 10 hours. Um, which I don't do that often anymore. That's, that's, that's something I used to do when I was younger, and I don't often these big marathon uh, sessions any, any any longer but that game kind of grabbed me in the first hour or so like really? i had a couple of frustrations in the very beginning because okay a little bit of history i haven't played most of the assassin's creed games um okay. i tried to play like the very first one at one point and i was like eh don't love this and then i played a little bit of syndicate which is the one set in like victorian era london right which mm-hmm. i do like it was fine um i like that you play as a a male and a female character in that because you're a brother and sister yeah. this is the first one where you get to pick your gender in the very beginning and that's your gender the whole way through i think oh, okay i'm not sure if origins was like that because i know origins also had uh, a male and female main character but i don't know if it switches like in syndicate or if it's pick one so sorry listeners don't, yeah. don't grab me on that but um <laughs> for this one you get to start out and you pick the brother or the sister you pick alexios or cassandra and you know, the voice acting is amazing all the way through. Most of the uh, villagers and stuff you encounter just call you Mystheos, which is like mercenary. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how they avoided a lot of the gendered language, which was cool. Nice. But there's this huge story within the game. Like there's a culture uncovering and there's also naval battles. And also your character is super interesting. And it's interesting in a historical perspective for like Greek history and also Greek myth. Mm-hmm. Um and you're like sailing all the different islands. The map is huge. I'm literally like I've beaten the main two uh, stories of the game, mm-hmm. and I still have two or three islands I haven't been to. <laughs> wow! Because I haven't needed to go there for any reason. Like you can just go there for fun, but I haven't been sent there. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a huge map. You're it's it's during the Peloponnesian War. So like if 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 you're like me and you're like a history buff, but you also like mythology and you also just like really interesting characters, this has been a really, really fun experience for me. And it's been a long time since I got into this kind of game on this level. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one was probably Mass Effect Andromeda. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I am super enjoying it. I might play it. Might, well, you know, I probably won't play tonight because I have a live stream, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely be playing a lot more soon because it's, it's it's been a really really fun and it just kind of grabbed me and hooked me in and it's rare that a story-based game does that especially since i won't play all those games that you know you'll you have to play as a dude so right actually i'm curious because uh, i've played uh, um, a fair number of the assassin's creed games and, and they have varying different relationships with the uh f- near future abstergo Mm-hmm. storyline how much of that is there in this new one um it's it's still, so this is the side version of that from what so okay so i've been talking to one of my friends who's been explaining some of the lore to me uh because mm-hmm. i i don't know the lore as well um so this mm-hmm. is kind of the side storyline where the researcher is named Layla hassan and she's mm-hmm. looking for the origin of the assassins um mm-hmm. so like i don't want to give any spoilers but the isu are important and this is this this game because it's set in I think like four something BC four thirty one I I forgot when it's set, um, mm. but it is set before the assassins and the Templars and all that really exist. So oh. she is finding the origins of the the spear of Leonidas and the assassins order in general and kind of what kicked off the whole thing. So it's oh, it's there, but I've only had I think three modern day scenes I've had to play, and they've all been pretty short. I had heard they were going to slowly pull back on that more. So that's interesting yeah. to hear that's actually happening. 
Yeah, it is. It is there. Like it's 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 making an appearance. But at this point, you're so far back in history because Assassin's Creed Origins happens after this game, and that's oh, where okay. you really like explore the beginning. That was the one from a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. So this one's like even farther back. So it's got less of a relationship to that than you might think, but it does have more of a relationship to the Isu. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Do, do you feel like um, you're missing the lore? Um, there are a couple times that I went and looked stuff up. Because if mm-hmm. you haven't played all the other games or even like a few of the other games, you may not know what some things are. Mm-hmm. Like the first time I encountered like an EC artifact, I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, you know, gone and read the wiki and also talked to people who have <laughs> explained it to me a little bit. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess, but I still feel like I was getting a historically rich and interesting experience without knowing all that. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, I mean, you know... Um... It, it, it can be tricky when you're jumping in relatively cold to a game, a long-established franchise, and it's a latest game in the franchise. Um, you know, it, it can be equivalent to like picking up, say, a Vampire the Masquerade book and not having been played much in the past twenty years. You know, maybe not understanding what all the resonances are, or what the the components are. So yeah, it's it's. It, I'm always intrigued by how companies basically try to reinvent the game a little bit, so that way new people aren't put off by it yeah i would definitely compare it to an experience like mass effect andromeda where first of all i know everybody was like it's buggy mine wasn't buggy so i don't know what everybody was complaining about mine was fine mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I, I i honestly don't know and i'm really sad that fan complaints have made it so we're probably not getting dlc because i really loved that game yeah. um but you don't need to have played one through three to enjoy andromeda you okay. um you will see easter eggs and you will know a little bit more if Mm -hmm. you've played those three but like this is taking place a few hundred years after uh commander shepherd so Mm. commander shepherd is a hero and they do talk about you know her a little bit her in my game sorry Mm. (laughs) for anyone that's confused but uh she's that's that's not important you can still enjoy the world of andromeda without knowing all the things that happened in one through three so Mm -hmm. I, i feel like this is the same thing where i might be getting a richer experience if i had played the other 1,200 Assassin's Creed games. Right. Um, and then I'd probably be noticing Easter eggs that I'm not noticing, but I don't mm-hmm. care because I'm still having a great time. And that's, and that's great. And that's, again, sometimes tricky. In fact, um, that leads to was probably my good and bad experience, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, I played the original Commodore 64 version yeah. of text adventure Hitchhiker's Game. Um, and that I think it's weird. It is. And I was a huge fan of the original books. Um, I had read, I listened to the radio plays. I had read the novel. Um, I, I was really into it. And so I saw that it was a game that was written by the original author. I was like, I, I got to have this. So I begged my mom. She got me a copy of that game and I started playing mm. it. And I didn't understand that Douglas Adams wanted to play with people's expectations. Um, so I started playing it as if, you would go through the novel and there's a certain point in time where the game just stops doing that and mm-hmm. it doesn't really telegraph it at all. Um, and so I started doing the things that happened in the novel and they just weren't working and I got frustrated because I'm like, well, I was treating the novel like basically a, a walkthrough um, <laughs> and it just wasn't working. So I was like, well, this is stupid. Um, and this was before even really hint books were a big thing. I mean, you know, the, the only thing that was really available is there was a, a, a hint line you could call. And it was like 25 cents a minute that you could talk to and get hints on games. Um, Infocom had that. And also they had the Infocom books where you could highlight certain passages to get hints. I couldn't afford any of that stuff. Um, so I just kept trying and trying, beating my head against the wall. Um, and then finally I figured out I needed different stuff. And so I stopped thinking about it as a novel, or thinking about it as an actual game, a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And then I got pretty far... And then I ran into the next thing that I didn't realize he was doing, which is playing with language. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know so what you're talking there, about. <laughs> there's one puzzle, and spoilers for a 35-year-old game, but um, there's one puzzle where you have to get past uh, uh, an AI, and you have to do something impossible. Um, and so throughout the game, your inventory has been, you have this, 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 and no tea. And it's meant to read like it's just a joke. He doesn't have any tea. Um, and, he, and Arthur Dent, the character playing, bemoans the fact he doesn't have teeth throughout the whole game. But it's actually an inventory item. Mm-hmm. And so you can hold no tea in your hands. 
And if you then at one point in the match, you do get T and it doesn't remove no T from your inventory. Um, so you can actually hold T in one hand and no T in the other. And it, the whole time it looks like it's a gag, then it looks like it's a bug. And in reality, it's by design. It's meant to be, you can hold T and no T to get past this thing because that's clearly an impossible thing to do. The game just gets weirder from there. And so it's like, it was a game that latched into my imagination. I still remember very vividly playing it, but I also, it's extremely frustrating. I have never finished that game in my entire life. And every time I go <laughs> back to it, I get to that puzzle and I have irrational hatred for that puzzle. I just can't finish the game. Yeah, I definitely have games that I've, like, I have no shame in putting down a game if I get tired of it or mm-hmm. if it's just bothering me at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we've talked a little bit recently. So I, I am a Kingdom Hearts fan. I picked up mm-hmm. Kingdom Hearts 3. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, I... One of the things I like about Kingdom Hearts games is that you don't have to use the magic system if you don't want to. Like, mm-hmm. you can literally just kind of button mash Keyblade your way through most of it. Right. Um, and then I got to a point where there was a really big monster, and it was really hard to hit with the Keyblade because it was, like, up in the air, and it was huge, and it was all this stuff. And I haven't played it in several months, and I don't know if I'll ever finish that game because I mm-hmm. tried a few times to kill that thing, and I feel like I'm going to be forced <laughs> into using magic, but I haven't been using it, so I don't really have a good grip on the magic system mm-hmm. and i'm like irritated because <laughs> i one thing i don't like about games and i've had this happen with with more than one game is when it kind of telegraphs to you that you can play it a certain way and it lets you do that through most of the game and then punishes you for playing that way near the end because yeah. i've seen that happen in a couple of games where it's like oh if you want to play this whole game as a, a warrior you can and then near the end it's like oh you have to use stealth now and you're like but i didn't put any points in stealth because i've just been running in and hitting things and uh, that is a very frustrating thing for a game for me, is if they, they act like you're fine until you get to a certain point and they force you into a different play style. Yeah, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slag on a game that uh, a lot of people really love, so I'm going to hate me up for yeah. this. Uh, but Deus Ex, I think, is sometimes uh, uh, respond, has this problem too. Um, because the game ostensibly says you can play it any way you want to. You can solve the problems in a wide variety of ways. And for a lot of the levels, that is true. You can stealth your way through. You can mow everybody down. Um, you can do a combination of them. And, and for the most part, that's generally true. But there are certain levels where it is very implied that one particular path is preferred. And if you haven't prioritized that path, it becomes very challenging. So you get these weird kind of roadblocks of your or, or difficulty curves of your own creation, because like if I primarily focus on stealth and stealth equipments, but now this is going to be a big gun battle, well, I'm going to die, or vice versa. So I mean, yeah. the, I, 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 I admit, I agree. There, are, I, I dislike games that tell you you could play this anyway, because usually that's not objectively true. I would much rather have a game that says, okay, if you're going to play stealth, the game's now going to go this direction. If you play shooting, the game's not going to go in this direction. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've even had that happen in like tabletop games, just to relate it to that for a second. Mm-hmm. In that, like, there was a while back where I went to play a game of, of Vampire the Masquerade. I had some friends. They wanted to play 20th Anniversary Edition. I was like, cool, let's let's go. We, what's what's going on in, in your campaign right now? Because I was joining an, an ongoing campaign. And they, they told me about all that's happening and where they were in the world. And I made a character that was very appropriate to that. And they didn't really have a lot of diplomacy. I made a very diplomatic character. And then they were playing. I've, I love my friends. But I've never <laughs> seen such a combat-focused game of Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> Right. I was like, this this is not what this game is about, usually. <laughs> like, yeah, there is some combat, but, like, I've never seen a game where it's, like, mostly gun battles. And I'm like, my character doesn't have any dots in that stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I made a very diplomacy-focused type character because they were in an area of the world where they didn't have a translator and they needed, like, a guide. And I was like, oh, I'll make your guide. I'll be so mm-hmm. useful, you know? And then I wasn't useful and also they had a lot of trouble trying to figure out a way to bring me in because they kept just like doing this stuff where i was like yeah we should go talk to these people and they're like now we're gonna shoot them all and i'm like why am i here like, yeah. and like yeah it's it's not fun i found that obsessant issue with games like D, to be honest uh, mm-hmm. i mean um it, it, this extends to D video games where if you take one of the infinity engine games like icewind dale or Baldur's gate or even yeah. Neverwinter nights where it's advertised as you can pick any class from Dungeons and Dragons. You can roll your character up and you should be able to enjoy the plot. They should state in the manual, if, if games even have manuals these days, uh, that if you want the easiest mode, choose a fighter. If you mm-hmm. want a challenge, 
choose a spellcaster. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because these games are not designed for you to play first level spellcasters. I have no doubt these days that there's more uh, more thought put into how to make these characters survive, but usually in all of these games, to introduce you to the elements of the of the system and the setting, they'll put you up against a monster like a bear or a pack of giant dire rats or something like that very early on and if all you can do is hurl a magic missile and maybe a chromatic orb there's a bit of second edition for you (laughs) you can um you can expect to die very early on and i find when playing DD tabletop a lot of people run DD where every single combat is a fight to the death Mm -hmm. and i really hate that in rpgs i've got to be honest it's one of the things i find so boring as a player the idea that if if the party is on the verge of a hill and in the valley is a goblin village, that we have got to massacre everyone in the goblin village or they will massacre us. Because if there is someone in the party who's playing a bard or even a sorcerer with charisma maxed out or a paladin, and that paladin isn't just a bloodthirsty psychopath, mm-hmm. they should have the opportunity to use their charisma-based skills outside of an urban environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that mental division a lot of people make with D&D, where as soon as you leave the confines of the city, the social characters are less useful, really limits the potential of a game where you can take hostages, where they might take you as prisoner, where you can ask for information. You know, we don't want to fight with you goblins. What's over that hill over there? And try bribing them with gold, you know? Yeah. It's... Um, it can make role-playing so much more interesting if you start using those those social attributes. Well, I'm going to put a positive version of that then. Ooh. In my last D&D campaign, which I have talked about on here, where I played Jane Giantsbane, the halfling ranger who was raised by dwarves. Um, she was very cool. And by the end of the campaign, I had tamed and befriended several animals and goblins who were all part of my retinue. <laughs> because... <laughs> There was one I was good. So she was chaotic good. Mm -hmm. So she was very enthusiastic about killing evil things. Mm -hmm. And she was going to kill a goblin. And there's a goblin in a pit and she couldn't shoot it. I kept rolling like twos (laughs) to shoot this goblin that was in a pit, like literally. Um, And finally he struck a deal with me. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. You can carry my shit. And then I found another one later who had been a servant to like a, a super bad guy. And I was like, you can come too. And then by by the end of it, I like there was a list of like there were two goblins who were my friends. There was um, there was a a, a sentient mimic uh, <laughs> who was who was my friend and carried my stuff. Um, she didn't like anybody else in the party. Uh, <laughs> I had a tiny a tiny flying snake because I was a ranger and I got a pet. Um, I had a dog that I rode um, whose name was Ambrosius because of labyrinth. And wow. then I also had three wolves, but the three wolves weren't allowed into any towns, so they ran off into the woods at my urging. Um, and then we called them Chekhov's wolves because we knew that at some point we'd be in trouble and they were going to come <laughs> back and save me. <laughs> so we used a lot of charisma-based powers in that out outside of uh, towns, which was really fun. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. And it was a great experience. It was it was a great time. Like she's probably one of my favorite characters I've ever played, just because. She was so enthusiastic and so bouncy and so, like, ready to defeat evil. But then whenever somebody was nice to her, she was like, oh, I guess you're not that evil. Okay. Like, <laughs> you can come with me. That's fine. Uh, and it's interesting how just changing an element of the game can really change that tone. Um, like, uh, when I ran a, a V20 game, um, I ran it through uh, um, an early version of Roll20. Um, which did not have a ton of support for storyteller games. Uh, so basically, we just used it as, a, as Skype and a whiteboard is basically it. You know, I didn't really use it for much else, um, which made it kind of hard to run combat. So even the limitations of the system, it just made it to where I didn't really want to run combat very often. So a lot of it just ended up being a lot of talking and charisma and the like and politics because the the, the nature of the medium we were using just made any other option difficult. Um, mm-hmm. So when I did roll out a combat a couple of times, it got this oversized sense of importance. And since the, whole, the game was everyone's playing a neonate and they had like two blocks of, of domain. Um, it really helped to sell it. Like, you know, when the Sabak pack comes in, okay, now I'm going to, I put up a map on the screen and start marking stuff out. They're like, oh my God, this is going to be huge because we don't do this very often. 
And so what would have in perhaps say the game you were playing, Dixie would have been just that day's fight took on an oversized proportion to change the rules or anything, but just because it didn't do it as frequently and because this, the, the system made things a little bit slower, the, the fight felt bigger and more epic than I think it would have been otherwise. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, uh, the ultimate, I guess, extension of that in a lot of games is the ability to resurrect dead. Uh, yeah. And uh, in terms of making something utterly sublime, completely mundane... And I don't just level this at D&D because, in fact, I'd say with subsequent editions of D&D, it's become harder to resurrect uh, mm-hmm. other characters. And one could argue that that is defeating the object of the game because people want to be able to get right back in and play again after they die. But from a narrative perspective, I love the idea of having to sacrifice something great to resurrect your companion. Uh, I find the idea of using spell components to do so often quite clunky. Uh, because people don't often keep track of such things. But having to pledge yourself to a deity and swear to serve them, otherwise some great destruction is going to be mated out upon you, that kind of thing can make a resurrection or just a raised dead spell in a game mean something great. Or even if you're looking at vampire, making a deal with some awful barley or some awful salubri to get the same kind of deal. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I want to save my friend from from the thrall of the beast. Uh, well, in that case, you know, give me a vial of your vitae and we will um, we will drag him back for you. But now we will have ownership over you. Th- that kind of thing can make for fantastic role play but when it is just broken down into mechanics and you know the roll of a dice and quoting the chapter and verse from a book well it says i can do this because i'm a 10th level cleric i i really lose something uh, so uh, maybe I just have a big problem with D and D. I don't. But <laughs> <laughs> well, no, actually, that's that's something else that came up in that same game with that, that character I was just talking about. Is that we had a priestess at some temple resurrect one of our party members who died, um, and then there he, he was marked, and bad things started happening to us, <laughs> oh, interesting. and like terrifying omens and portents, and the priests of some like death deity were after us because we had cheated them. Um, huh. so he made it really fun. Our, our, our GM, like he, he made it super, super fun, uh, that, you know, yes, we got our character back. And part of the reason that, uh, our, our DM let that happen was cause it was a first time player. Oh, and so right. Travis felt bad that like his was the character who died. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there were consequences, which I really appreciated. It wasn't just like, Oh, he's back. It's a miracle. It was like, he's back. And Shit's going to get weird. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's important because um, I think even uh, 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 humanity or the morality paths in, in World Darkness or Chronicles Darkness can fall into the same category if consequences are not played out. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- you know, uh, you get into this kind of thing where, oh, well, I can I can lose a couple more dots before it becomes a real problem for me. Um, so those dots don't functionally matter. But if you are made by the storyteller or the game master to feel the loss of each one of those dots and, and you know like you say uh, other portents and omens or, or just some other form that makes you say oh things are going bad because i have chosen to to have this slip on my sheet then you're going to feel each of those dots more and you're going to worry about it more as opposed to eh, i'm fine to take down the four humanity and then then i have to start worrying about things yeah well i think that's where chronicles of darkness and then V5, of course, really excels with touchstones. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. important to have something tangible that uh, connects to your humanity track or whatever your morality happens to be uh, so that it feels like you're losing something. Now, obviously, you don't have a touchstone for every single level, so it may feel very much like, well, dropping from 9 to 7, if you're that high up to begin with, isn't going to make me play my character differently. But having some of those uh, roadblocks on the way It's actually uh, something we've done in Let the Streets Run Red. Uh, One of the V5 books we've we've got coming out is a chronicle based around what would you do to protect your touchstones. Mm. And we're not going down the route of, uh, well, your touchstones are dead, ha ha ha, as soon as you create characters, because that can be a big pain and a bit disrespectful to the players, quite frankly. But if they start getting blackmailed with uh, evidence of what you are, so implying the touchstones know you're a vampire, 
some a third party goes to the touchstone and says, we have footage of your friend, the vampire, doing something vampire-y, and we expect you to hand over your company to us, or we're going to make this public. So it isn't just about how much you care about your touchstones, it's about how much they care about you, and mm. the strain it can put on that relationship when people start exerting blackmail, threats, ultimately deadly force, potentially, in the game. Uh, so we've got one of those very street-level chronicles in the book because I think playing with that humanity is an integral part of a game like Vampire. Yeah, I agree. And actually, um, it reminds me, to touch back on video games real briefly, um, it reminds me of my experience playing uh, Vampire Bloodlines. Um, because, uh, again, spoiler for a 15-year-old game, um, there is a female ghoul that you can acquire during the course of the game. Um, and and uh, she just does what you tell her to do at a certain point. Um, and it was, at first I was like, oh my God, this is so objectifying. And then I realized that was kind of the point because um, I was a player who was getting uncomfortable with, with some of the stuff. And I'm just like, it was a weird moment of, I can't tell if the designers intended that way or if it was just that late 90s or 2000 game design era. But it got me really thinking about the consequences of, of my actions, even though the game itself was not really recognizing them, but the way it was portraying those choices to me, it was giving me an entire dialogue. And I was probably reading way more into the game than when this started happening. So I had this moment of the, as a designer going, I think I know what's happening here, but as a player, I'm having much stronger emotional connection to this. And I just actually let her go free. I'm like, I can't, I just can't do it anymore. It's like, you know, we're done. Just, just go do something else. Um, uh, I've always thought that was intentional, like on on the design part. Like when you really think about what it is to have a ghoul, especially a ghoul of 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 that you know closeness who like lives in your apartment and does mm-hmm. your things for you, like you have a slave. Yeah. And so the game is like, oh, you want a slave? Here's what it's like to have a slave. It's mm-hmm. going to make you feel real weird because um, it's not. Yeah, it's it's uncomfortable having someone who will do whatever you tell them. That's that's a strange feeling. Mm-hmm. You don't want that. You know, so um, yeah, I've 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 always thought that was intentional because I know I, I have a couple of problems with with Bloodlines, which is mostly its '90s design right. choices, yeah. like the starting outfits for most of the women. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, they get better as as you get better armor, but I don't understand why everybody has to have a midriff in the beginning. You right. know. Um. Anyway, past that, but like that's one of those things that. Yeah, I kind of rolled my eyes at it at first, too, especially because you can put her in all the different outfits, yeah. all this stuff. And, you know, then later I, I was like, I think they were trying to creep you out with this mm-hmm. because some of the dialogue choices indicate to me that they were definitely like trying to push it a little bit to see what the players would do. See, I've never been sure either. I think, we, well, we've obviously all picked up on that as a, as a theme or the how uncomfortable it is to have a ghoul in that game. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it would have been helpful to me as a player for a, another character in the game to remark upon how disturbing it is for you to have a ghoul. And maybe that's just me needing it sung in my face. But for, I guess it's the kind of thing we could find out if we did a bit of digging, uh, how intentional it was. But yeah, it's that's an interesting conundrum. I'm I'm not sure how intentional or how by design it was that that was supposed to be uncomfortable, or whether he- it's Heather, isn't it? I think that character. Sounds uh, right. Yes. Yeah. That is her name. Um, is is basically an automaton until the point that she probably dies. Um, yeah, hmm. I'll be thinking about that now. Yeah, well, and and I, I think that that leads to another interesting point is that, um, like like with my comments about the Hitchhiker's Guide game, sometimes as a designer you can't always anticipate how it's going to land with players. Um, uh, all you can do is kind of just design the the best you can and what you think is going to make the most sense and how it's going to be appropriate. Um, and, and sometimes it lands wrong, uh, uh, but in this case, I think. Um, even if it was intentionally right, it was perhaps a slightly flawed implementation, but it still landed, I think, higher than perhaps intended. You know, the, the, the result ended up being stronger than the initial design may have accounted for. Um, and, and that's always really, really exciting. You know, or, or, you know like we talked about with um, uh, Dixie, we were talking about the uh, 
consequences of the person being brought back to life. It's like that's a stronger resonance, a stronger play that core D&D doesn't necessarily account for, but it leaves room for that. Mm-hmm. And it allows that kind of exploration. When, and that's where I think games become really, really interesting is when people can add more into it, whether it's a single player reading more into what's going on the screen or a group picking up a concept and really riffing with it, even though the game didn't necessarily lay that down. That's where things get really exciting or can go really, really wrong. Um, so certainly there are no end of games that uh, let's optimistically say they had good intentions, but they put something out there or it lands wrong and it just, it seems trite, it seems cliche, it seems bad, it's, it's, it's stilted or it's just frankly offensive. It, that happens too. Um, but uh, we, this, you talked about your RPG experiences. When you get to yours, Matthew, what's what's one noteworthy, positive or negative RPG experience? You've given us some examples in the past, but I'm curious if you have another one that sticks out in your head. Mm, sticks out of my head as well. You know, like some bizarre... Yeah, like a uh, spike. Yeah, like I've been in a dreadful traffic collision. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an RPG that has left a positive or negative experience. I'm sure there are some. So <laughs> no, they're all entirely neutral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every RPG you ever play, uh, honestly, you feel completely neutral. Honestly, about. I find tabletop RPGs quite dull. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're in the wrong business, my friend. <laughs> yeah, how did I fall? You're into also a this? really good actor. Look at all those videos you've made about how great tabletop RPGs are. Yeah, that's a living, isn't it? <laughs> I'm a much better actor than I realized. <laughs> I remember uh, playing a game of Anima. I don't think it's in print anymore. Anima is a tabletop RPG. It was made by a Spanish company, uh, the name of whom escapes me. And uh, it's a game in which you are very much playing Final Fantasy-style heroes with ridiculous hair, ridiculously-sized weapons, and amazing magic. And my character was an illusionist. I'm going to tell you all about my character. Uh, my character was an illusionist <laughs> by the name of Thaddeus Conundrumus the Confounding. Wow. And uh, he had a this long nose, a uh, moustache that was curled on either end. He looked very Dali-esque. And I drew an illustration of him where he had a dead rabbit falling out of one of his sleeves as he was casting a spell with a very stage magic wand. It it was great fun. It was one of the best characters, well, most fun characters I've ever had to play. Mm -hmm. And I remember the GM was so accommodating to everything every single player wanted to do in that game of Anima. There was an overarching story and we followed it loosely and it was a fairly typical fantasy uh, styling where there was an army of monsters slash undead slash something else coming over the horizon about to attack your home city you've got to recruit a band of uh, knights of the round table sort of thing defend your city before the horde reaches you but in interspersed throughout all of that were some brilliant character studies of of the things our characters wanted to do. So I was going around hosting shows because ultimately my character was a stage magician. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he could cast no spells that could have a material effect on the enemy. He was purely an illusionist. And... I remember my character's aim was to basically become as high in society as possible, get as many plaudits and as much money as possible. He wasn't by any means noble. Mm -hmm. And his reward for the adventure, for completing the adventure, we were told by the Earl of the town, you can have whatever you like. And I said, I would like an introduction to your daughter uh, so that we can so that we can marry and I can marry into your family. And the Earl's face, by way of the GM, just completely dropped. And he said, no. Uh, <laughs> I have heard the kind of man you are, Thaddeus Conundrumus. You will not be anywhere near my daughter, uh, which was fair enough. <laughs> and so I, and so my character started doing his stage plays about how um, how much of a turncoat the Earl was, how he did not reward the heroes that saved his city, uh, and would not abide by the laws. And it was it was just great fun. It was great fun to be able to play a character to the fullest, to the point where my I ended up retiring that character. It was one of those rare events where I could get to the end of a personal storyline and think. 
I've done everything I want to do with this guy now. Anything more, and it's just going to be too ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I kind of signed him off. He had an airship by that point, (laughs) as you do. And the front of the airship was just a big version of his face. It was like something out of Wacky Races, because he looked like Dick Dastardly. So it was like a big... A, a massive, uh, yeah, this massive nose, a massive mustache, <laughs> just on the front of this purple and pink airship, which was the the conundrumous or the, the confounding zeppelin or something like that. <laughs> and so he went sailing off. I think the earl's daughter ended up falling for him naturally by that point. So I just whisked her away, and we went away to pursue our own adventures in some other land, with the earl shaking his fist in righteous indignation. But yeah. Uh, it's definitely one of those tales. There's no specific point where it was fantastic. It was just fantastic throughout because mm-hmm. of how rewarding it was, not just for me, but for all the other players. We all loved that game. Well, I think I think it's part of why I like playing Jane so much is because it was there were four of us in the party and two of them were first time players. Um, so they had no restrictions on what they were doing. Um, oh, yeah. One of them particularly uh, a, a, a girl I know named Lacey was playing a, a tiefling warlock, mm-hmm. I think. And she was just gleefully evil sometimes. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, and it, it was weird how often our, our desires lined up as a chaotic good and kind of evil person. Because mm-hmm. we were both just very loud about it. Like, like she was fine just killing people for no reason. So if I was like, those people need killing. They are evil. She was like, excellent. Let's go. <laughs> um, but but yeah, like it, it was just a, a, a kind of gonzo D&D party, and it was so much fun. And I think there's something to be said, especially coming from playing a lot of World of Darkness and Chronicles and some of the other games that, 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 that we work on and produce, which tend to be a little bit serious, mm-hmm. even if they have their, you know, silly moments or whatever. Sometimes it's fun just to play a it's just a, a a fun game where like fun is the whole point. Yeah. Mm. Um, so even though there there were some serious moments in that D and D campaign, like once again we found out that there's a death god after our friend. Um, a lot of it was just it was just fun, and I had a fun character, and I had a lot of fun playing her, and just yeah, it's 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 the same kind of experience, Matthew. Like I I wish I could have kept playing her for like years. You yeah. know, she's she's the kind of character I would have liked to play. Until the end of her story, the like natural end of her story, mm. it just didn't work out that way with the group. But um, like, if anybody ever wants to run D and D for me, I will bring Jane Giant Spain <laughs> to the D and D table because I love her. I, I I just she's she's gleeful and she's wonderful. Like she's essentially you know Kaylee from Firefly, <laughs> like that 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 kind of personality, mm-hmm. just just chipper and bubbly. And yeah, I I, I don't know. Like it, it's just fun to play. A, you know, it, it it sounds redundant, but like. We play a fair amount of serious characters or characters that are, you know, kind of evil because of World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness. Like, your characters are, by their nature, not the best people, usually. And then turning around and just doing something that's just joyous can be really nice. I I once described um, Vampire the Requiem to Rose as bastard-covered bastards with bastard sauce. So (laughs) I certainly understand that. But I've I've heard people say that's one of the reasons why they like playing Pugmire, for example is because it is so totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's like clockwork. Every time someone plays Pugmire, the first hour or two will be the dog or cat puns. And then mm-hmm. you know, the next hour or two, you're just having fun with the game. And then you say, oh, hey, there's actually, now that we've played a game or two, underneath it, there's actually a serious game if you look. <laughs> you know? But they're just, just enjoying the experience. So, I mean, there, there's definitely um, room for both. And sometimes that, it's amusing to me when the fun kind of changes the shape of the story in a positive way. Um, Mm -hmm. I ran a uh, Marvel superheroes game a few years ago um, and it was uh, set in the Marvel cinematic universe. So basically the the conceit was um, while Nick Fury was putting together the Avengers, they needed a B team of superheroes to kind of get things going. I love B team games. Like that's, (laughs) that's why that there's that one Lord of the Rings game from like 2003, 2004. Mm. That was perfect because of that, because you were just running alongside the main right. the main game. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Totally. Um, B team game. And uh, uh, and so um, I, I drew a lot from comic book lore, but I want to make sure the players didn't necessarily have it. It's like they're, they're called the invaders. And there's a whole reason for that. But um, 
the pitch to them was like, I'm tired of playing vampire. I'm tired of running vampire games. So we're going to do a superhero game. And then the, the twist was the bad guy was a vampire because I wanted to hit the players. Go, oh, God damn it. You know? Um, so, uh, but it's superhero games. So it's to kind of counterpoint, we talked about earlier, it's kind of structured to where you're going to have roughly a fight every game or two. I mean, you're, you, you're yeah. going to get into ridiculous outfits and punch each other with amazing powers. That's, that's kind of what. And if I'm playing a superhero game, I'm expecting that. Exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? Um, but, um, one of the guys chose to play uh, Iceman, Bobby Drake, and he was a 17 year old kid. Um, so, uh, uh, they go to Transylvania because of course you go to Transylvania when you're playing a game with vampires. Um, and they go to a nightclub and the vampire confronts them in both nightclubs. because want to get that kind of blade movie style moment. Um, and Bobby Drake just pulls out a cell phone and starts videotaping. And the vampire's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, nothing. And he keeps doing his speech. And then finally he's like, no, seriously, what are you doing? He's like, oh, you're, you're trending on Twitter. It's fine. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to roll. And, and just spent all of his karma, you know, just popularity because he had a huge popularity, massive success. And so I was like, uh, yeah, this vampire is not trending on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and so like the entire session was them organizing flash mobs against the vampire strongholds. <laughs> and I, I could have said no, but I was like, let's see where this goes. And so I pull up Google Maps and we're now scrolling all over bits of Transmania on Google Maps to find likely locations where they can have little kind of protest scenes and it was it was a ton of fun the players still talk about that because it, it did deviate from expectations and the players were just so into the moment and so into the characters and all of the other players were just along for the ride and it, it was just a blast so sometimes breaking expectations and following the fun can lead to really exciting experiences I think it's it's more than possible to do that kind of thing with Vampire the Masquerade Requiem Wealth, Wealth the Apocalypse especially the older uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, Lestat in a rock band style game is mm-hmm. is, is uh, fertile ground for for playing a game where you don't have to take things so seriously. If you're a Spinal Tap style vampire rock band or werewolf rock band, and you're touring, and the various mishaps you get up to as you go from domain to domain. And you end up with uh, some almost uh, cannonball run style entourage of people pursuing you, trying to bring you down, who are getting mixed up with all of your fans, culminating in a Woodstock-like festival. I think is that that's the kind of game that you could play to to still play vampire, still play with all your disciplines, still have to feed from roadies, groupies, and others, but you can really have a lot of fun with the characters and remember what it was to be human because of the human faces you constantly have to put on display to your loving audience so you can still have a bit of pathos but i think you can still get you don't always have to play games set in the world's darkness or chronicles of darkness all grim and miserable and oh, no. uh, and, and shirt rending I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I yeah, no. I most most games that I've played have been, you know, a little silly and a little fun here and there. Right. It's just that the 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 overall tone. Oh yeah. Is you know horror. <laughs> yeah, and I sort of think I, my personal style of running at least Vampire the Masquerade is always a a a a, a little bit of a tone of black humor. Um, honestly, I think Buffy is probably the best tonal point I shoot for, where it's like it's generally a dark setting but you have these moments of quips and, and, and humor to kind of leaven the note and I'm sorry there's a really loud right. noise outside can you guys hear that no. only ju- only slightly not really oh, kind of um, there's a noise there's a noise yes uh, so I apologize to the listeners we'll try to edit that out it sounds vaguely eerie I kind of like it <laughs> um, uh, but anyway uh, what I was to say is that we're getting close to time um, and, and I want to give you guys a moment to think about one more any kind of game, either positive or negative experience, you think is noteworthy. But I wanted to talk about one I've had recently. Um, there is a board game, a recent board game came out called um, Betrayal Legacy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's Betrayal oh, yeah. on the House of the Hill, but it's a legacy style game. And um, I was like, okay, how do you make a haunted house game where most of the characters die into a legacy game? Uh, and it turns out how they do it is... Um, each scenario is a year, and so you're actually playing an entire family. Um, and on the back of the card, you write down each of the family's names. You write down like, their fates and what happens to them. 
Um, and so, and the turns are real fast. Like we played uh, uh, one turn in, or one year, I should say, in like an hour. Um, and they like, jumped in this. So we actually played two back to back. And my character survived from 1666 to 1694. Um, so he's a 50 year old guy and whatnot. Um, but uh, at one point, you get artifacts, and you can turn, if you put your sticker on the artifacts, they become uh, 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 not legacy artifacts. Um, uh, uh, birth heirlooms, I think is what for heirlooms. Um, and you can mm-hmm. write on there a word to describe them. So I got these glasses and it made sense. I was a 50 year old guy and I, this glasses card. And so I made it an heirloom and I wrote it's, it's Karis and Simon's, these are Simon's glasses. Um, and it's interesting because then they could shuffle back into the deck and then down the line, one of my descendants can find my older character's glasses and use them in a future setting. Um, and it, it and what struck me is just really interesting. We end up doing a ton of role play on a relatively simple game. The game is not necessarily explicitly required to role play. There's some story there, um, but we ended mm-hmm. up doing a lot of narrative building about how our characters died and what happened to them and the relationships we have with our descendants, um, because the game left the room to kind of explore that. So it was a weird moment of a board game that where you go through a lot of characters, like most every character is going to die in every session. And yet there is still not only a continuity, but also a desire to actually play through the consequences of things. It was really, really fascinating. Hmm. I'm tempted to give it a go. Yeah. Um, So uh, Matthew, do you have any other thoughts you wanted to put in or experiences you thought were cool? You could say no. Uh, uh, (laughs) Uh, I can tell you a video game experience that wasn't cool it's fine have any of you have either of you any of you all of you masses uh, (laughs) have either of you ever played the adventures of bio billy no vaguely it is a real game so i'm not allowed to call it the nez apparently according to our last (laughs) episode of this kind so it was on the nes and you're playing the eponymous hero, Bio Billy. And For those American listeners, he's saying Bayou. Bayou, <laughs> Bayou Billy. Uh, yeah, we don't have any Bayous in the UK. No, you have and bogs. Yes, we have bogs and moors. Anyway, uh, and yeah, you're playing this very much Crocodile Dundee-style character, except I know he's Australian, as I think his girlfriend's been kidnapped by Mr. Big. That, that's usually the bad bad guy's name and you have to range your way across the swamps and in a jeep and through various other things tackling goons until you rescue her now it's a very interesting nes game because there's a side scrolling element which is fairly normal uh very much like an early streets of rage or double dragon right Uh, there's a driving segment to it a couple of levels are driving in the jeep uh, which is very road rash like mm-hmm. uh, uh, so you're trying to avoid obstacles whilst uh, bashing other cars off the road if i remember and there's also a first person shooter <clears throat> element which is like duck hunt uh, and the issue with that game as well as the ridiculous difficulty in the side scrolling element where if you are not in the exact frame your blows will not hit the enemy, but they will completely destroy you. Right. Is uh, that if you don't have the required accessories with the NES, so the light gun, for instance, and the turbo controller, and the steering wheel, for those individual elements, which are all in this one cartridge, you will suck. Oh, wow. It's just, it's almost impossible to complete the game unless you have bought those separate hardware accessories, which you know, cost a fortune back then, yeah. probably cost even more now, if you're a retro gamer. Uh, so, I remember this was one of the first games I ever owned and getting so frustrated when I was about six or seven years old because I thought all the the car part of the game looks fantastic but finding it completely impossible to do and um, it in terms of how it informs me from a role-playing design perspective what that tells me is you always need to give the players the tools they need at the very beginning of the game, yeah. whether it's in character creation or whether it's up front in the systems chapter. Don't bury things. Don't bury the lead, as they say. So I just look this game up because every time we talk about something that I don't know about, I have to look it up because we all have supercomputers in our pockets. <laughs> and I want to tell you a few facts about this oh, game because no. oh. I'm actually kind of fascinated right now. <laughs> it was originally a Famicom game called Mad City. 
and it the and apparently it got changed a lot when they localized it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the NES version is harder than the Famicom version. That's the rare. enemies are more aggressive and have more health. Wow. Um, and in the Famicom version, you get like a health gauge in the driving stages, so you can withstand collisions, which it doesn't have in the NES version. No, no, you hit a road sign and you blow up. Also, yeah, exactly. Which is not how that's, that's not the original game. <laughs> and then the Famicom version also has four possible endings, and the NES only has one apparently. Oh. Um, and they also made the game's heroine sexier. Of course, they did. Of course. They gave her less clothing. But more more facts about this though. Archie Comics published a comic book series based on this. Wow. Uh, in eighty nine to ninety, and on Captain and the Game Master, which you may remember. Yes. Uh, Billy showed up. <laughs> he looks kind of like Crocodile Dundee, and he was voiced by Gary Chalk really? of Transformers and Beast War er, and and Beast Wars fame. Wow. So, huh? That is. There were a lot of really weird little facts on the Wikipedia page that I was like, really, really. <laughs> well, so the only reason that game came back to mind is because I have all my old um, Super Nintendo and Nintendo games pretty near me so i can always see the the titles and yeah that i had no idea that it was a game with such a complicated past and that yeah. much trivia uh, there we go so i i feel justified vindicated in its <laughs> difficulty now clearly it was unsuitable for a six or seven year old to play or indeed anyone to play human consumption yeah <laughs> yeah if uh if because I, I like to recommend other podcasts on this podcast because I keep doing that. <laughs> um, there's a great podcast that I just started listening to. It's fairly new. It's only like five or six episodes called How Did This Get Played? Mm-hmm. That, where they play a not great video game <laughs> and then talk about it and talk about why it's not great. Um, and it's it's a fun little podcast. I actually really enjoy it. I don't know. They, so. they, they, they classified How to How to Fool Boyfriend as a not great game, and I disagree strongly. I told you that was the one episode <laughs> I, I didn't quite agree with, <laughs> and it was because none of them that played it got to the satirical and like got got to the meat of the game near the end. Right, like all of them were just like, I don't get it. It's pigeons, and it's like, well, they they also weren't familiar with dating simulators. It was a whole thing, right. like or 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 visual novels. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like they like weren't familiar with visual novels, so they were like, this game's boring. You don't do anything, and it's like it's a visual novel. Right, so that's what it is. That, that, that's the genre. <laughs> But in in the most recent episode, Eddie, that I listened to, they actually got into what is a game. What? And I was like, we've talked about that. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, they, did they come to an answer? Them towards us. Uh, they did not really come to an answer, aside from the fact that to be a game, that there has to be a lose condition, hmm. or a way to fail is one of the things that that they think because huh. they played a game that has no failure. Huh. And they were like, it's not a game. It's not a game. It's just a <laughs> it's a flying simulator. It's not a game. You can't call it that because you can't fail. You can't lose. Huh. Mm. Well, that, that's something for you to mull over while you're at Gen Con, Eddie. There you go, yeah. Um, Dizzy, do you have any other last uh, impressions you want to bring across? Oh my god, I have so many things that I like. Um, you know, I will I will say that I think I've come to the conclusion that LARP is not for me. Okay. Um, aside from maybe very specific LARPs, because I... Okay, I'm, I'm going to say a little bit... I don't think freeform LARP is for me, mm. if, if that's the right classification. Um, I want to have a character sheet or powers or something. Ah, so the so-called Nordic LARP. Yeah, sure. I want I want something to do mm-hmm. in the game besides make everything up out of my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I have played a LARP that I really loved where I was given a character sheet and I had powers and I could use them and I knew what my character's strengths and weaknesses were. Mm-hmm. And I have played a few LARPs where I had no clue what was going on or how to get anything done or what the point was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't like that. Like, I like a little tiny bit of a narrative push. Um, so I, I, I don't know if it's bad because so many people do love them and that's great. You go do you. I'm not trying to yuck, yuck your yum or anything. But like... I don't think I like that because if I wanted to do improv, I would just go do improv, you know, and, I, and doing some improv based on a character sheet is fine <laughs> or, or based on something besides just a back, a, a backstory. Like I want to know if my character is stronger than the other characters, you know? Absolutely. And I think it's perfectly valid to say this play style is not for me. Um, I wish more people would do that online and supposed to just like, you know, this game sucks. No, it's just not for you. It's not to your tastes. Mm hmm. 
Um, exactly. There are, there are many games out there that are just not not to my taste, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I know you've talked like how much you really love Skyrim, and it's not a game to my taste either. But I completely respect that Skyrim is an amazing game. It's just not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so cool. So if people wanted to talk to you, Dixie, about your game preferences and what you're playing uh, lately, where would they find you? Dixie Cyanide on most social media or DixieCochran.com. Although I'm not sure the contact button is going to my email and giving me notifications, so I'm trying to fix that. So if you try to contact me via my website, I apologize. Mm. I'm trying to go through that now. Yeah, it's like going to my my personal Gmail account instead of because I, I wanted it to keep it separate from Onyx Path. Right. But then it's like going into like not my primary mailbox. Oh. It's going into like promotions or social or something. Oh, so yeah. or updates or whatever all the other inboxes are. And I'm like, yeah, I should fix this. So sorry if you've tried to email me. I'm fixing it. And Matthew? Uh, you can find me on MatthewDawkins.com where the contact button is working. Uh, and you can it's also... working? It's like going to the right inbox. <laughs> uh, and you can also, uh, and I recommend you do, uh, subscribe to the Onyx Path Twitch channel, uh, which is going to have a lot of contact, uh, contact content coming up uh, now. Uh, <laughs> and in the past week, uh, we are launching our Twitch presence in earnest. And so highly recommend that you subscribe. And um, I've been uh, changing around uh, my social media and online strategy a bit. Um, so by the time this goes live, if you go to pugsteady.com, it should have all the things you need to contact me with. Um, I'm doing a bit of more of a divide between personal and professional. And so part of that is just pointing everyone in one place. So pugsteady or eddiefate.com, they'll both go to the same place. And that's where you can contact me. Um also, uh, as always, you can check out uh, theonyxpath.com, um, where we have a lot of buttons towards our wide variety of social media uh, stuff. Um, uh, we do have a Discord. Um, I'm, I'm actually talking with Ian right now about getting uh, a link to that on the website so people can go into the Discord that way because people have been asking where to find it. We've mentioned it a few times. So hopefully we have a link on the website that will take you there. Um, you know, I think Twitter is probably the best place to contact any of us about uh, the Pathcast. seems to be where we generally congregate as three of us. Um, mm-hmm. So if you have thoughts about the, the podcast, we're definitely always going to listen um, as long as, you know, you're not a jerk about it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, just thank you for, for continuing to help us out. I mean, I just realized the other day that this is going to be right around episode, you know, 65-ish. So we've been doing this for quite a while now. Um, I know, yeah. It's, oh you feel every every episode, right? <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I mean, we're still we're still doing this. We're still having a lot of fun. Um, I hope you guys liked the uh, experiments we did a couple weeks ago um, with having more people on the podcast. Uh, let us know what you thought about those. Um, we're continuing to try new things with this, but uh, we also want to make sure that we're just doing stuff that amuses us too. And sometimes we do episodes like this just because it's fun to just talk about things that we enjoy. Um, So thank you for listening, and as always, many worlds, one path guest.